welcome to the Aerospace Advantage podcast. I'm your host, John Slickbaum. Here on the Aerospace Advantage, we speak with leaders in the DoD, industry, and other subject matter experts who explore the intersection of strategy, operational concepts, technology, and policy when it comes to air and space power. So if you like learning about aerospace power, you are in the right place. To our regular listeners, welcome back. And if it's your first time here, thank you so much for joining us. As a reminder, if you like what you're hearing today, do us a favor and follow our show. Please give us a like and leave a comment so that we can keep charting the trajectories that matter to you most. This week, we're going to talk about a really important concept, what it takes to maneuver in space. Now, think about it. In every other domain, air, sea, and on land, the difference between success and failure, and let's be clear, in the military that normally means the difference between living and dying, comes down to agility. Moving to avoid a threat or best execute a mission objective. That's why fighter aircraft pull so many Gs and embrace the notion of speed. Same holds true for vehicles on land and ships at sea. The maneuver advantage is a real thing and it matters a ton. So it should come as no surprise that agility is an imperative in space too. For decades, satellites and spacecraft have generally operated on predictable tracks in orbit with limited ability to adjust their position. However, with the increased focus on this domain, especially for military purposes, adversaries like China and Russia are increasingly seeking to fly their space assets with far greater agility and endurance than we've seen before. That's going to take a whole new form of propulsion, and that's what we're going to explain here on today's episode. The innovations we need to embrace and ensure we can gain the maneuver advantage in space. So to discuss this very important topic, we have our very own Major General Larry Stutz Stutzream. Hey, hi, Slick. It's great to be back on the podcast. It's great to have you back. And of course, we also have Anything Space, our very own Chris Stone. How you doing? Good to be here. Doing great, Chris. Thanks for coming back. And I'm really excited to introduce Dr. Christina Bach of General Atomics, one of the top technical experts in this field. She began her career at the Lawrence Livermore Laboratory and is an experienced and accomplished leader, especially when it comes to nuclear technologies and materials. Hi, everyone. Thanks for, for inviting me. Pleased to be here. Dr. Bach, we're, we're thrilled. So we're going to get this thing started right away. Chris, I want to get started with you. I tried to explain this from a broad perspective in the introduction, but you have some real depth here since you just wrote a paper about this topic earlier this year. So why does maneuver advantage really matter in space? Sure. Well, a couple of reasons. First, space has become a warfighting domain, and it's become a warfighting domain, a contested domain because of the actions of the Chinese and Russians primarily. And as a result of the rapidly growing threat from both countries, our vital space systems will need the ability to actively defend itself via maneuver across all orbits and into cislunar space. And this applies now because of China has deployed ground-based ASAT systems, anti-satellite weapons, as well as testing orbital ASAT systems as well. And they do all this because they know that our space systems are critical infrastructure in its own right. And it's also tied into other areas of critical infrastructure on Earth, such as transportation, agriculture, energy, finance. And of course, it provides decisive enabling capabilities for terrestrial military forces at home and abroad. So current chemical propulsion systems, while great for more benign environments, are not going to last long in a maneuver warfare-based conflict. And so that brings me to my next reason, and that is that China is in continuing to shape their space forces based upon their concept of what's known as mobile warfare, what we would call maneuver warfare. And this provides the ability to outmaneuver and defeat, degrade, or destroy enemy capabilities 
and strategies by exploiting time and space to their advantage. So having the ability to rapidly respond across orbits and out to cislunar space is seen as a priority of the Chinese given their current activities, as well as future plans to increase presence and achieve space dominance over the US and allies out into cislunar space and beyond. And then lastly, we have a time issue. And this does not only apply to time to get after the issue with Chinese plans for having what they call fleets of these space nuclear propulsion and capable spacecraft by 2035, as some reports indicate, but also our ability to not be second or third in a domain that clearly is dominated by a first mover advantaged actor. And given our restraint from getting ahead of the threat uh, to lead the, uh, by, by example, we are now behind on having matching offensive and defensive means, but also our systems, despite some measure of limited maneuverability, are vulnerable. And as a result, we must have some space forces capable of rapid maneuver with the propellant efficiency and high specific impulse that nuclear thermal propulsion can provide to get caught up and into a better position strategically in space. So all those reasons are why we should get after this maneuver advantage that nuclear propulsion can provide. All right, Chris, I'm going to ask you to repeat something that you said just to verify I heard it correctly. As the United States, you said we are behind and we're vulnerable. Is that correct? Yes. Our space capabilities are locked into predictable orbits because of their mission design. And that's just the way orbital mechanics works. And as a result, our, our capabilities were designed with chemical propulsion like hydrazine and, and other types of, of, of chemicals that provide the ability to station keep and maintain those mission orbits. But because they're pretty much undefended at this point, especially up at the kinetic level of threat, that we, we need to be able to have a way to maneuver. And right now, if you maneuver rapidly, you burn a lot of propellant off, and that takes away lifespan from the spacecraft and pretty much denies the mission over time. And so basically, even if you do maneuver to protect the system, the adversary still potentially can, can kill the vehicle slowly over time. Sure. Okay. I just wanted to really foot stomp that for, for the audience here as we're kind of setting the stage. So I, I appreciate that. All right. Stutz, as a military commander, can you talk to us about why these factors matter? You commanded an entire chaos. So why are these trends important to track? Well, Slick, I think it begins with we need to understand what maneuver is. And well, it's a principle of war that's timeless. It's built on enduring experiences throughout history. All other principles of war are shaped by it. Think about the power of the offense, how it's affected by moving faster and more unpredictably than an opponent. So for me, you know, in, in the Air Operations Center, uh, small example, you know, fixed sites are easy to destroy by air power. But you make it mobile, allowing it to maneuver, it's a huge complication. One of the most challenging kill chains, that is going through the steps to detect and then, you know, bomb a target, one of the most challenging are mobile missile launchers. It's one of the most frustrating tasks. You know this, Slick. Why many countries have placed both offensive, defensive missiles on wheels. It makes them hard for us to detect and destroy. So on a greater level, let's take a page from history. After World War I, the French built this truly amazing line of defenses called the Maginot Line, that's named after their minister of war invented the idea. Imagine having that distinction for the rest of history. Well, the Maginot Line was a vast fortification that spread across the French-German border. It was magnificent. It was brilliant, state-of-the-art. It's an idea that came out of World War I. Stop another invasion. 
But an amazing transformation and maneuver occurred when the Germans combined aircraft, fast ground forces, and radio communications to move with speed not seen previously in history. They simply bypassed it and stunned the French. Everywhere the French tried to respond, the Germans were already there. That was the Blitzkrieg, what we know today, or call it. Shortly after the Germans began this new maneuver, it completely emasculated the Maginot Line's purpose. So there's a lesson for space today. Static orbits are not enough. Limited amounts of chemical propulsion is not enough. Space Force needs to move out now in developing new propulsion technology faster, further, expanded efforts. And that gives the United States a maneuver advantage. Why? Well, I reflect back on what Chris said about adversaries, especially China. China's published this key aim, that space operations in future wars should abide by a basic guiding thought, a focus on control of space. Yeah, I, you know, Seth, I really appreciate, especially the historical analogy. And, you know, for me, the knuckle-dragging fighter pilot here, you know, the, the, the fact that we're every gram of weight and, and, and mass and volume counts going to space, you know, obviously pre-launch. And, and we're not refueling satellites. So as Chris mentioned, you know, every, every bit of maneuver has to be a strategic decision based on, you know, the life cycle of, of the satellite. So I want to bring Dr. Bach in here to really manifest what Chris and you studs that have been discussing so far, because we need a whole new set of technologies regarding propulsion in space. So Dr. Bach, can you walk us through where we are today and why this falls short of providing the desired levels of uh, maneuver in orbit? Sure. Thank you, Slick. Let me just step back for a moment and mention that, so going back to maneuver, maneuver in space is really the ability to have agility to move when you want and where you want quickly. So as was mentioned, today's satellites are following a very predictable orbit. Basically, you launch, you deploy a satellite from a chemical rocket, and then you do little thrust maneuvers to orient, get the satellite into position in orbit, and at some level, you do some station keeping to keep it in orbit. But now, if you want to go somewhere, you really have to have a lot more thrust and ability to move around in space. And of course, in space, mass always matters. So if you look at today's chemical rockets, these use a fuel and an oxidizer, which are mixed together in, in a combustion chamber. So that's just like in your car engine, where you have the fuel and the air that comes in. The air is like the oxidizer. And in a space rocket, <clears throat> that chemical reaction takes place, and it makes a gas. This gas gets very hot, and it's expelled out of the nozzle. And that hot gas, as it expands out of the nozzle, of course, for every force, there's an equal but opposite force. And that's what really pushes the spacecraft forward. Just basic physics. So these chemical rockets can be solid or liquid. And when you look at these, so for instance, on the shuttle, the solid rockets, you see them turn on, they ignite, they do their full burn. Actually, you can't really effectively turn them off. So the solid rockets are, are intolerant to cracks and voids when you make them, and they must be carefully controlled so that you launch your, your space shuttle or whatever without any problems. Liquid rockets are more controllable, but they need they can be throttled. Some propellants can be throttled. Some, like hydrogen, as was mentioned, can be quite unstable. And so you have a mixture, again, going back to the, the combustion chamber. You mix the, the fuel and the oxidizer. You get hot gas that expands out. But in the disadvantages overall for chemical rockets, 
you really need to carry that oxidizer. And that oxidizer is heavy, relatively speaking, in molecular mass. And that's where a nuclear rocket starts to really become evident because here you can use a propellant which is hydrogen, and that's about six times less than the molecular mass. And that escape velocity that comes out of the thrust, so I'll, I'll talk a little bit more later about a nuclear reactor, but what counts again is there's a hot gas being expelled and hydrogen, of course, much lower in mass, and you can increase the temperature and your exit velocity goes as the square root of the temperature. So as you increase the temperature, you're increasing the thrust, and all of that helps with the fact that you have a much more efficient reactor core, which translates to lighter mass. So all of this comes to a particular number that we like to talk about in space for space nuclear is specific impulse. And that's how much thrust you have per propellant mass. So with a liquid rocket or a solid chemical rocket, you need to take up a lot of mass to get anywhere because that propellant is really costing you. So you're really limited to something like 300 to 400 seconds in this specific impulse unit. It's a funny unit, but a very useful one. Whereas for nuclear, you're able to get up to 1,000. And that really has to do with how much energy is released in the chemical reaction versus in an atomic reaction. So if you want to zip around in space and maneuver and be agile, you don't want to follow a regular trajectory, you really do have a benefit from nuclear. Well, Dr. Buck, I can't say thanks enough for that for that explanation. I'm sure the audience is really going to enjoy that. And I hope we at least knock off a couple college credits towards a space degree here because it was that was super informative and technical, but really broken down well. So I do appreciate that. And, you know, but what I'm getting out of your explanation is, you know, what we have today out in space is uh, a lot more for just minor position adjustments, not for real maneuver in a warfighting perspective, the way that Chris and Stutz described. So what have you been investigating that could provide a better capability? Yeah, so this is a very exciting area right now. From the long history of terrestrial reactors, you can look at these technologies and now take them into space. So as I mentioned, in a, in a car or a, or a chemical rocket, you have your fuel and your oxidizer. In this case, we're looking at nuclear thermal propulsion. So there are different kinds of uses of nuclear in space. So there's nuclear thermal propulsion, nuclear electric propulsion, fission surface power. I'll be focusing on the propulsion and notice that that doesn't have the word power in it. So on Earth, we do nuclear energy. We're making electricity that's making power. In this case, we're using the nuclear core to generate heat and then we're flowing a propellant through that core and heating up the propellant, which in this case is hydrogen, as I mentioned before. And this can allow you to be much more fuel efficient. So if you think about the system, you need to have a big hydrogen tank, which you're, usually you're wanting to carry around liquid hydrogen because it's more compact. Of course, that means you have to have a cryogenic tank. Um, you feed that using turbo machinery involved here because you have to have a non-nuclear part of the engine also, into the nuclear core so that your propellant is heated up and eventually comes out the back very hot, up to 2,600 degrees Kelvin, so that you generate high thrust out the back. And that will translate, again, as I said, to this high specific impulse. But basically, you want to go somewhere fast. So the hydrogen itself is what's expanding out of the back and causing your thrust. So you can be very fuel efficient. You can now turn your nuclear reactor on and off, so that allows you to 
so it's uh, different from solid boosters, for instance. You, you can control where you're going, when you want that impulse, when you don't. You can have, in the future, you can imagine that there are hydrogen depots or something like that if you needed to refill. But basically, I think for a nuclear spacecraft, you have higher specific impulse. You have lower specific mass, so that's the kilograms per watt that you're going to generate or per thrust. You can really use any propellants, but as I said, the lowest molecular mass wins. And you can also generate power as well as propulsion. And in the case of fission surface power, you would be only generating electricity. But if you look at it kind of from four main things in space and space warfare, you can look at it as high energy density heat generation. That's this thrust per propellant mass. You benefit greatly from the high temperature because many of the power conversion units, if you're using nuclear electric propulsion or generating power, they're more efficient at high temperature. You have resiliency because you can start, restart multiple times, and you have a long-lived core which operates without the need of sunlight. So that's a big deal. If you're going into deep space, basically beyond Jupiter, sun is not very efficient at being a power source. And so this gives you the maneuverability independently, the rapid response, the ability to execute these non-orbital trajectories and have this low dry mass, meaning the, the amount of fuel you have to carry around. So the ranging time in the space allows you to now generate enough thrust and enough power to actually run a payload. So that's a whole other story that I'm sure we'll get into. If I could, if I could add something slick here, Dr. Bach also, is you started out by saying the most essential thing, and some of these issues can be uh, so simplified. When you say we, ha we can have the ability to zip around in space, that's a perfect way to put it compared to the very predictable way we work orbital changes today. Let me add on to that because, of course, you know there are positions in space like L4 where you can hang out and wait for the right moment for when you want to go somewhere or go look at something or have surveillance of, of something that right. may be out there. Yeah. That's a very important part. Yeah, and, and from a warfighting perspective, this is the high ground. Those, those locations are strategically important in the future. Yeah. Yeah, incredible. I mean, of course, I know we're going to talk about the real uses, but this is, you know, obviously the, the quantum leap compared to where we are now. But Chris, I've got to ask you, and I think we've mentioned this on an earlier podcast, but what we've known about this type of technology for a while, right? So what's really stopped us from pursuing this earlier? Yeah, well, absolutely. This this capability of, of space nuclear propulsion it is not new. We we pursued this capability before and during the Apollo era of the 1960s to go to the moon and conduct other missions of high importance in the Cold War. One example was the NERVA project that built and did ground testing what is known as high-enriched uranium reactor-based engines. And so basically, it's, it's uranium and it's highly enriched. It's similar to the type of, of uranium that's used in, in weapons and other types of power sources at the time. And for those that might have watched the TV show For All Mankind, I think it's Apple Plus, they, they used that engine in the fictional nuclear pathfinder spacecraft for both exploration and military purposes. And so NERVA was looked at for both military and civilian purposes. However, by the early 70s, there was a beginning of an anti-nuclear push, both from a weapons standpoint, but also an energy standpoint due to events like Three Mile Island and other, other situations later like Chernobyl. So it became very, very difficult bureaucratically and legislatively 
to launch anything into space that had a nuclear core. And as a result, in order to do things like the smaller ones, like a nuclear thermoelectric generators, like we saw on the Cassini probe, a lot of process has to go through to get presidential approvals and things to launch it. So NERVA was canceled before it, had, before it ever had a spaceflight demo. But now things have changed and people are starting to rethink nuclear from a power standpoint due to climate concerns as well as the advancement in technologies and policies. So, for example, the last administration changed space nuclear policy for power and propulsion to be able to pursue low-enriched uranium-type systems, which is different from the, the high-enriched we talked about earlier. And that makes the bureaucratic process easier to consider such technologies for military purposes and space applications because rather than having a presidential approval like you would for high-enriched uranium applications, you, you can get a secretary of defense level or agency head level approval for that. And so that also increases the, the, the safety margin because a lot of the, the lower enriched uranium material is considered to be a little less risky in some cases. And these technologies also include new materials that I'm sure Dr. Bach might get into later that help with the safety of the system and address heating and shielding of the engine system. So back in the day, they used graphite. And I think nowadays, and if I'm not mistaken, they're, they're pursuing ceramics and other types of technologies. And in addition, the demand is high again as we're back into a great power competition in both space and energy and as a result, we're seeing projects like DARPA's Draco program, which is a nuclear, nuclear thermal propulsion system demo program that's working towards the first in-space demo of a low-enriched uranium system by 2026. So I think all these things are what kept us from, from pursuing that. And also, I might add one more thing. In the early 90s, there was no perceived need to go beyond our predictable orbits. There was no perceived threat, per se, at that time. So for the last 20, 25 years, you know, it, it was fine. To, to have a predictable orbit and do station keeping because, you know, because of the distance it took to get out to those satellites, some of which are in geo, which is about 22,000 miles, you know, it really didn't see a lot of threats. Soviet Union was gone and the Chinese capability hadn't quite grown to a level that it is now. So all these things are, are why we were prevented or just decided not to go in this direction. Yeah, no, again, I appreciate the uh, the background there and, you know, kind of get to a common theme here, you know, for us as the United States, where we, we only really kind of know about these things, but we only pursue them once we, we have a threat, right? I mean, we, we haven't thought about space being a domain until, or a warfighting domain until there was a real threat there, you know, just going back to jet engines, right? I mean, we were like, eh, P-51's great, you know, oh, the Nazis have a jet. We really need to develop this technology now. So just seems like we have, we have this trend and aerospace space that we've got to we've got to break it so Stutz I want to pull on this thread a little bit further on what, what Chris was saying this notion of space nuclear thermal propulsion on orbit it's, it's not theoretical we know our adversaries know about this and they understand that they want to use high maneuver advantage in space and they're pressing forward with this technology so that kind of sets the conditions for a standard technological competition so any thoughts on how we should approach what's given at stake well slick you've got it you've got it totally in focus so uh, first, for the folks who believe in the peaceful norms of space, yes, we can aspire to that, but that age has dissolved, Slick. China and Russia are moving aggressively to dominate in space by, by action and by policy. So the peaceful norm age is over, and we did not do this. They forced this on us, that is Russia and China. So yes, the race is on to preserve our access to and freedom to maneuver in space. Um, and, you know, I'll just double hammer the nail that Chris brought up. Everything rides on space, communications, navigation, global commerce, 
flow of information, even weather information. Just imagine a day without any of that. It's perhaps a peak at something that impacts perhaps our very existence as a functioning nation if it's taken away. We lose space, we lose access to the modern world, or we're held hostage, more importantly. We're held hostage by those who have dominance, and we have to accede to their will, most of which we don't share. So it's a survival imperative to compete, and I would harken back to a previous technology, hypersonics. Hypersonic technology, it's been in the press recently. You know, the Russians have fired a couple of these. They're showcasing them in the Ukraine conflict. And the United States prototyped, I mean, was really in the lead in hypersonic technology and then let it wither away. It was a very frustrating thing. We watched in the early 2000s, China in particular, build large wind tunnel facilities and other capabilities to do testing and development. So we are behind now in trying to catch up. We've lost the footing and it's a fairly severe situation. So folks would say, well, what's the cost of pursuing now nuclear propulsion? Well, the cost is being a second mover down the road. Once we lose the ability to outmaneuver China in space, we're at risk for being compelled. So we need to stop debating the cost of things today, knowing that there is that large bill down the road, not just in cash, but once again, I'll say for the third time, being compelled by others who can seize access to and deny our free use of space. Yeah, it really is scary to think about the fact that we, we could lose the high ground, the literal high ground. So Dr. Bach, I got to be honest here. And of course, when you know even our audience hears the term nuclear, they're bound to get nervous. And I get it. I totally understand. There are serious concerns when it comes to this sort of technology coming into play. So is space-based nuclear thermal propulsion really responsible? And, and how do we manage the risk? Yeah, those are great questions. Like, so let me start by saying that we are in a very different place than we were in the 60s and 70s. If you look at the modernization of just the military, that's one thing. But look at what we can do now with the science and technology to build new things and to advance the technologies. We have modeling and simulation capabilities that are miles away, I mean, light years away from where we were in the 60s and 70s. That allows us to really do a lot more before we actually turn something on. So let, let me talk about it in terms of two aspects, because one is a very practical reality materials thing, and another is just how do we overcome some of the, the challenges that occurred in the 60s and 70s. So what I mean here is by launch and also on orbit. So in both cases, there are different philosophies that you want to follow, as in with terrestrial reactors, there are launch protocols and and fail-safe mechanisms that we employ to make sure something doesn't go critical before we want it to. But I want to first just note that, you know, a nuclear reactor does not mean it's on all the time, emitting radiation, like a radioisotope. Radioisotopes are actually more difficult to launch because they're releasing radiation all the time. So you have to have always protection of the people preparing the the spacecraft and so on. And that's because those radioactive materials are always decaying and releasing energy. <clears throat> Nuclear reactors are only on when it's in the right configuration to go critical. That means it's enough fission material so that it's generating a controlled fission process where the neutrons are bombarding the fuel, which is a fissile material when the neutron is captured 
then it continues and generates another fission with more neutrons. And that's, that's done in a very controlled way. And that's what's happening every day in nuclear reactors when we produce energy terrestrially. So in this case, you know, uranium by itself, when you dig it out of the ground, is really only very weakly radioactive. You can dig it out of the ground, it's 0.7% enriched, which means this part that, that is generating the neutrons, which can turn into a fission chain, chain reaction. And this point that Chris made about low enriched uranium is the difference between doing enrichment processes, which people have probably heard about, which is actually quite difficult to enrich from above 0.7% to up to 20%. That's low enriched uranium. For bombs, you would use something up at 90%. We don't need to be that high in order to generate enough heat to heat this hydrogen and make nuclear thermal propulsion a reality. So when you are looking at the safety for the launch, again, launch protocols, you don't turn on the reactor until it's in space. And at that point, you're up at something like a thousand kilometers or higher to be in a nuclear safe orbit. And when you're generating um, heat to do propulsion, you're actually running it much less than you would for power on the ground. And so it's actually not generating as many radioactive products. And even if it even at the time that you're generating these products, they do decay. So you can have it in a nuclear safe orbit. Most of those radioactive products would decay and no longer be radioactive by the time it may be, you know, at the end of its life. So on orbit is another situation where this is the power of modeling and simulation and the making of new materials have really advanced nuclear thermal propulsion. <clears throat> Today we can make materials that help protect the core. So for instance, Rover Nerva had a problem with the erosion. When you get hydrogen and carbon together at very high temperatures, they're very happy to go away as a gas and essentially erode the carbon graphite core, which is a matrix material holding the fuel. So in this case, we use ceramics. We can protect the hydrogen channels where the hydrogen is passing and gets heated by the nuclear core. And we can also do other tricks when the design about how we have that pathway for the hydrogen that's getting heated through the core. We can take advantage of higher temperatures, run the non-nuclear engine turbo machinery at higher temperatures. That makes them more efficient. That means they're smaller, more compact. And all of it has to fit, of course, within a fairing of a spacecraft that needs to be launched. So, you know, today we can approach the, the design of nuclear thermal propulsion much more intelligently. We can use new materials and all of these things are done in, with the ability to have these safe protocols, use poisons, for instance, in the core to make sure it doesn't go critical when you don't want it to. You can use explosive charges as they do with other spacecraft to disperse the entire spacecraft before it falls if there's an accident on the launch and, and you don't want to have water immersion. So there are several steps that are, of course, written down in processes and being developed with the advantage of these new materials, which give you more safety margin. And I'll just add one more thing that ever since the beginning of the atomic age, safety has been a huge priority, regardless of all the events that people come to mind with Chernobyl or Three Mile Island or any of those things, or even the Soviets crashing a nuclear-powered spacecraft into Canada in the late 70s, 
safety has been a, a huge deal. And so there's lots and lots of rules and other, other things to help protect people from these kinds of things. I'm going to throw out this question for any of you. So let's kind of flip this around a little bit. What's the risk to America if we don't pursue this type of nuclear propulsion? Well, I'll start slick. You know, we, we refer to the ultimate high ground. We, China is pursuing the ability to move into places that our space force, three years old now, just can't get to, can't think about, and it's not prioritized. And so developing this propulsion to be able to get there is a parallel to what I said earlier, which is, you know, the exploration of whether it's the air domain, sea domain, and land. You have to have the ability to sail that, to fly through it, to march through it in, in space. You need some type of device that allows you to, to break away, to go faster, to maneuver to places we can't get to in the current way we, we think about space. So, you know, the risk is that we become a second mover and that we don't, we're not out there with folks who could be, use those areas or that ability to outmaneuver us. And that's a dangerous military advantage against us. I think another thing that we hear a lot from military leaders today is the phrase speed to need. And when you're dealing with, as, as General Shaw of U.S. Space Command says, the tyranny of volume, not just a tyranny of distance, as we hear with our Indo- um, Indo-Pacific Command folks, we really do have that tyranny of volume in space. And whenever you look at the Unified Command Plan saying that their responsibility is 100 kilometers and up, that's a lot of territory, a lot of space, no pun intended. So you have to have the ability to get places quicker. If the adversary is there and the Chinese are there, if they're going to do something nefarious or they're going to try to leverage a lot of, of, of lunar orbit to, to potentially target or, or to monitor things, we got to have a way to respond to that. And if you're having to rely on, on chemical propulsion, that while efficient may take days or weeks to get to the problem area, you'll be late to need. And so we need to have the ability to gain speed and maneuverability and nuclear thermal propulsion provides that. Yeah. And, and I'd like to add on to that thought because I, I also think there is an aspect which is you need to know what's going on in space. And as I mentioned, it's a large volume once you look at cislunar space. And just having situational awareness as the first step in understanding what is out there is something we don't have. So, you know, from the military point of view, you know, we're blind and there's no way we can take any defensive measures if we don't know what's out there. So this idea of having agility and maneuverability is can't even be done without some level of situational awareness, which, you know, a nuclear thermal propulsion platform obviously can host its own payload in the future, meaning detectors looking at what's out there. I mean, that is even the first step before we can even have a comprehensive ability in space. All right, Stutz, listening to everything that you guys are all discussing, it cuts to the thoughts about deterrence. So does having a maneuver advantage in space help better empower America's deterrent posture so that adversaries are not as tempted to pursue uh, hostile actions on orbit? Yeah, sure. Well, first of all, deterrence is about having force, but having the willingness to use it. But this must be credibly, convincingly believed by an adversary. 
So first we need the capabilities to maneuver in space and create effects, you know, ranging from blinding and jamming to incapacitation of an opposing force. But here's the trick. The adversary must see and believe that we have the will to use this force. Uh, and, and it's got to be credible. And, and it's it, such that it forces them to choose to forego an action that's contrary to our interests. You know, as an aside, this is one reason why the, you know, very heavy cloak of secrecy involving the space force, space operations, space programs, that needs to be lifted to a great degree. You can't say, you know, trust me, I have a weapon, but I'm not going to show you, right? So, so China and Russia and the others need to believe our policies backstop by real capabilities. And this uh, begins with policy that liberates our Defense Department to develop the capabilities it needs to fight and win. And this notion of how important maneuver is to gain superiority over an adversary uh, to confound the adversary in these other principles of wars we talked about earlier, it creates uncertainty, it creates doubt. There's a potential for surprise and so forth. So this all contributes to a calculus in you know an adversary's brain that says, whoa, there's too much to risk here. Therefore, well, I'm persuaded from taking an action. And there's a there's a parallel, of course, in in the nuclear deterrent approach from the Cold War. We developed capabilities, we showcased them. It was all a wrapped in declaratory policy as to how we might respond to Soviet aggression. And we need to now take the same course in the space domain by having the capabilities to deter. And that begins with this essential ability to maneuver that's afforded by nuclear propulsion. And I'll just add one more thing here. The root word of the word deterrence is terror. It's the word that's translated as terror. So in addition to providing pause, it has to create some measure of fear and concern that the risk is just too great. And I'll add that that while we, in our current strategy, uses the phrase integrated deterrence, and we kind of gotten away from the phrase space deterrence, because to many people that doesn't really exist, I will point out to you that it does exist in the mind of the Chinese because they say so. And they believe that space deterrence, in order to be effective, has to have the ability to outmaneuver and to create war-winning capability in order to have a deterrent effect. And in fact, their deterrence is way more forward-leaning than the Western viewpoint of deterrence, which is we wait till we're attacked and then we respond and we re reserve the right to retaliate. In, in their viewpoint, they believe that if a threat is manifesting, they attack to deter. They, they preserve that capability to attack to prevent that attack from happening in the first place. And so we have to understand that the adversary that is already pursuing capabilities to hold us at risk now is also pursuing this maneuverability with nuclear thermal and they are they are a forward-leaning group. So we we can't just expect it to be one day they're going to attack us and we have the ability to retaliate. They are they are going to stick with their their policy and their doctrine and have the ability to attack first. How does the notion of cislunar space fit into this discussion? Well, yeah, first it, I might, I should define cislunar. Cislunar space is the area between the earth and the moon. And as was mentioned before, there are some gravity wells that can be exploited for benefits and advantage, such as Lagrange Point 2, which is on the far side of the moon, and Lagrange Point 1, which is halfway between the Earth and the moon. And that distance from the Earth to the moon is about 240,000 miles. So why it matters so much beyond the standard Earth orbits is because there is a vast growth that is projected and is happening now commercially and with exploration 
in that area of, of space. And so because of our need to understand what's going on out there, and by the way, it's very difficult to track things that are going to and from cislunar space, the speed to need that I mentioned earlier is very, very important. So if we're going to be able to defend our interests commercially, civilly, and militarily that are happening because of that expansion into cislunar space, we need to have the ability to get there faster. And the Chinese are already working that, and we need to be able to follow suit and achieve our own objectives as well. Yeah, as always, Chris, appreciate you breaking that down for us. Dr. Bach, we've focused a lot on military applications, but does this technology apply for other purposes like space exploration? Yeah, thank you. So Chris touched on this a little bit, but let's just start with Mars. I mean, once you get into deep space, of course, there is no sun. So you can use the gravitational assist, but you must take a longer trajectory if you're using chemical. So the advantage of nuclear thermal propulsion is, as Chris said, you get there faster. But really, there's an additional freedom because you don't have to depend on the alignment of the planets for gravitational assist. So you can leave, go and leave whenever you want, as opposed to waiting for an alignment. So that gives a level of, of mission flexibility, but also safety for the astronauts if for some reason they need to come back sooner than they had planned. And, you know, it gives you an increased ability to explore if you're not now looking at Mars missions or deep space. And, but actually, by the way, let me mention for Mars, you can get there in about half the time. I talked a little bit before about thrust and the fact that it's a much more compact energy source that you're heating that hydrogen and so you can get there faster. But when you're going into deep space, same same principles apply, which means that when you get beyond Jupiter, where you can't really take advantage of solar, there is nothing else. And if you look at the Voyager, which was a radioisotope, as an example, that is still actually communicating back to Earth. It takes a long time for the communications to get here, but it's 40 years. I mean, that is really an asset when you can have something in space, whether it's sitting there waiting for a command or exploring out beyond the solar system, you know, that that can only happen with nuclear systems. No, I really appreciate that. And, you know, it's obviously very important. So, Dr. Bach, how is the government pursuing this technology so we can move from theory to reality? We, we are absolutely moving from theory to reality. Thanks for the question. I think you can also recognize that since the 50s, when nuclear reactors were developed, you know, in the naval shipyard and then moved on to land, technology has changed a lot in advances where we can make customized materials, we can do modeling and simulation. And, you know, pursuing this technology is developing subsystems, testing them on the ground. All of that is happening right now. Both DOD and NASA have efforts to develop nuclear thermal propulsion. It's building on technology that has been developed before as early as the 60s with the Rover Nerva program. But now we can bring to bear all of these new modernized materials as well as computational capability that just did not exist before. So, you know, NASA has some specialized facilities where we can test nuclear thermal fuel. And, and that's been done successfully. I will mention that we are the performers on the DARPA phase one um, program, which is called DRACO. 
And I can talk a little bit about what has been happening in that program up till now. There is now a, a competition for phase two, so I'll, I will not be talking about the larger mission for the moment. But in phase one, you, we have started to demonstrate and prototype these materials. They have successfully performed in this very extreme environment of having neutrons where we test them in land test reactors, as well as in the prototypic environments with hot hydrogen in space, as much as you can simulate space on the ground. But that's where NASA has some terrific facilities that are very unique. So you know, once you show the performance and we've shown that we can overcome some limitations of nuclear reactors in the past, that really opens up and helps you understand how to do a mission in space. And we can leverage information from how we develop land-based reactors to bring to play here. And so there are some very methodical processes and protocols you want to follow and for space in some cases develop, but those are happening in real time now. It's a very exciting time. Well, that is great to hear. I'm glad that we are pursuing this in various ways. So let's go around the table. If there's a key takeaway that you want the audience to remember from today's discussion, what would it be? So we'll go Stutz, then Chris and Dr. Bach. Yeah, the takeaway is we've got brilliant people of which at the forefront is Dr. Bach and her team who have done so much work to, to prove this out and it needs to be sustained. It needs to be resourced. We need to move ahead. Why? Because we've got what appears to be quite the adversary across the Pacific who's already declared their ambition to have space dominance in everything we do, our commerce, every military service, life as we know it in the United States and in the countries of our allies are dependent upon having access and freedom to do what we do in space. And so this ability to maneuver is a strategic edge we can't fall behind. And so as we look forward to, you know, additional work that that teams like Dr. Bach are going to do, you know, Space Force and its leadership needs to tune in and they need to be a part of it and they need to encourage it. And they need to understand that, yeah, some long-term planning needs to be on the design board. So, you know, we continue to develop and field capabilities and not just R&D them. And then for me, I, I'll just, I'll be brief. I, if we want to maintain peace in space, which I think is the goal of, of everybody involved, is we, we must do it from a position of strength. And that strength must include maneuver warfare capability and in the numbers to be able to respond to threats in a timely and efficient manner. And space nuclear thermal propulsion provides this way ahead, and we should get after it absolutely now. Yeah, and I'd like to build on Chris's now. I, now is the time. We have advances in science that make it much more technologically feasible and necessary to do it because of the geopolitical situations. But, you know, we, we don't even have the first level of situational awareness in space, and we need to jump on that and be a first mover has been discussed before. So now is really the time. We need to go all the way up to space, not just test things on the ground. And I think all of the directions align to, to doing that in a timely way. All right. We've unfortunately come to the end of our time here on this episode of the podcast. I just want to thank each and every one of you so much for being here today. Thank you. Hey, thanks, Slick. And uh, thanks to you, Dr. Bach. It was wonderful. Thanks very much.
With that, I'd like to extend a big thank you to our guests for joining in today's discussion. I'd also like to extend a big thank you to our listeners for your continued support and for tuning in to today's show. If you like what you've heard today, don't forget to hit that like button and follow or subscribe to the Aerospace Advantage. You can also leave a comment to let us know what you think about our show or areas you think we should explore further. As always, you can join in on the conversation by following the Mitchell Institute on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, or LinkedIn, and you can always find us at mitchellaerospacepower.org. Thanks again for joining us, and we'll see you next time. Stay safe and check six.